minds and our hearts to what he would have us hear this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that's before us. We might even take a deep breath and say, wow, it's a lot. And we can feel uh, overwhelmed uh, by the very nature of all that's before us. I pray that you would help us see the clear and simple steps that you lay out for us to do among the myriad of things we think we have to do. Help us to discern the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to introduce someone to you that you do not know. Apologies to anybody who does, but I just doubt you do. The reason I can say this is because of his apparent obscurity. This is a little-known prophet in a hard-to-find place in the Old Testament. You can see on the screen that it says introducing Micah. You can also use your outline with the page number if you want to find it. It's going to take you a while. Apparent obscurity, also the obvious purity of your Bible pages in that part of your Bible. These are the white pages, the really white pages. No underlining, no highlighting. When was the last time you turned to Micah? So one more reason, I don't think you may know him all that well. There's a final reason, and that is the troublesome imbalance that we seem to perpetuate in our Christian lives that he so clearly establishes for us, yet we can't seem to maintain it. The troublesome imbalance of our Christian lives. Do you know much about Micah? Can we know much about Micah? Is there anything to discover about this lost little prophet in the very clean pages of your Bible? Yes. We mistakenly call this a minor prophet. The only reason the, we have the, the, in the Old Testament a distinction between the major prophets and the minor prophets is because the minor prophets wrote shorter books. Really, that's all there is to it. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, all of the prophets are put together and they're called the Twelve. There is no distinction. It's only about length of book, which we certainly know has no importance on the message. After all, the Gettysburg Address only took a few minutes to say, yet in its brevity we consider it a classic, don't we? Who is this little guy named Micah? Let me introduce you, first of all, to a passionate poet. He was an artist of sorts. Uh, This book is made up of three oracles that all uh, uh, appeal or start with this appeal of hear or listen in chapters 1 and 2 and then chapters 3 through 5 and then chapters 6 through 7. There's a symmetrical arrangement of thought that would be consistent with a literary pattern of a poem. This guy thought long and hard about what he was going to say and how to very cleverly write it in ways that could be remembered. In fact, chapter 8, verses 8 through 16, he goes through a very interesting play on puns. It's a word play. It's a, it's a, it's a word game using the cities that these people live in, the names of these cities, to rhyme or sound like the judgment 
that they're going to receive if they don't repent. It's very interesting. Lost on us, of course, in uh, English, but in Hebrew, and your Bible may have little notes as he mentions the city. It says, oh yeah, and the little note will say, sounds like dust, or bitter, or deception, or weeping, or, or house of dust. And so he uses this kind of use of puns to predict what is coming, very craftily put together to make a point. It seems to be a collection of his various oracles that were compiled, perhaps even after his death. He's a passionate poet, and he very cleverly tries to get his message across in a clear and a memorable way. He's also one among others. I mean, this little guy didn't just kind of show up and, and say something. Um, He's he's fascinating in the sense that he's a contemporary of Isaiah. There were other prophets at the time of Micah. And Isaiah was one of them. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. And he wrote a lot. If you were there in the first hour, you heard a great outline uh, about what Isaiah is structured as. Um, At the same time, in a little country town not far away, Micah was writing. Not a cosmopolitan dweller, but rather one who knew where the little people were, where the poor country people who were being abused by the wealthy burgeoning class in Jerusalem lived. He expresses his concern for the oppressed as the wealthy ignore the plight of the poor, and he was among them. It's also interesting, and I can prove to you that he was a contemporary of Isaiah because you found Micah by now, have you? Congratulations. Go to chapter 4 and allow me to read a few verses. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 3, though the section is actually from verses 2, uh, or chapter, verses 1 of chapter 4 all the way through verse 3. But it says, Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That's where it is in the Old Testament. You remember that passage? You've heard of it before? You heard somebody use it and say it? We turned it into a hymn? It's not the only place in the Old Testament. Those very same words appear in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. These two knew each other. And I can imagine them getting together. Prophets that nobody was listening to in a rebellious time. Preachers with no audience. Only reviled for what they were saying. Getting together to commiserate a little bit and talk about what these rebellious people continue to do. But also talking about what God had showed them about what was to come. And this particular chapter speaks of that millennial time when Christ will rule on this earth. And there will be no more war. Fascinating, isn't it? As these two get together and talk about what's going on and end up using these very same words in each of their prophecies. He's not alone in his message. They speak of a faithful remnant that will someday rule as God wants them to rule. So he's a contemporary of Isaiah. 
He's also a leader for Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the few good kings that there were, and he happened to prophesy at the time. As a matter of fact, it was his prophecy that caused Hezekiah to purify the temple and to follow the Lord. And then when Sennacherib of Assyria showed up to wipe out this puny little country lying between him and Egypt, they stood up against him because of Micah's prophecy. And 180,000 men dropped dead overnight and Sennacherib fled back to Assyria in great fear because this prophet was willing to speak and a king named Hezekiah was willing to listen. His words became so famous in that moment that no one forgot that later he became a savior for Jeremiah. Years later when Jeremiah is doing exactly what these guys are doing and telling these people to correct their ways... They want to kill him. They literally say, we're going to put them to this guy to death. But elders remembered the previous story. And if you go to Jeremiah 26, you'll see that these guys became his advocates to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, just before we kill him, there was another guy they wanted to kill. And his name was Micah. And look what God did through his prophecy. Let's just throw him in a pit and not kill him. And he became a savior for Jeremiah. Fascinating. Listen, what does all of this mean? We need to know this guy. More importantly, we need to listen to his message. So let me talk about his message. He's got a message of good news and a message of bad news. The good news is this was a time of great prosperity for some in the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Territories that expanded uh, to almost that of the reign of Solomon. There was no international crisis that... uh, led to any domestic uh, uh, difficulties, instead only prosperity. And uh, the excavations of Samaria, one of the cities that he prophesies against in the northern kingdom, uh, excavations of this show these ivory inlaids that, that, uh, that were there among these people that attest to their tremendous wealth. And in fact were the very things that Amos, another minor prophet, prophesied against in all of their wealth in chapter 6, verse 4. But this burgeoning wealthy class was doing so at the expense of the poorer classes. And the prophets were denouncing this as violating God's law and thus hindering God's blessing. They couldn't and wouldn't hear of it for all of the personal pleasures that they were enjoying. One commentator says, Israel and Judah had risen to heights of economic affluence but had fallen to the depths of spiritual decadence, idolatry, self-indulgence. And this is the bad news. They were spiritually impoverished. They were worshiping Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility, and and they were entering into other forms of idolatry. Wealth only uh, caused them to lust for more. And so treachery abounded as they sought greater riches and would step on anybody to get it. And this led to the social injustices to which Micah gives most of his attention. And his themes continue in this vein over and over again. If you go to chapter 6, you find the goodness of the expanse of their wealth, but at the same time, the oppression of the poor. In chapter 3, we see that you have leaders, that's the good news, but they're really bad leaders, ruining the people, saying, Oh, be quiet, Micah, don't tell us things are bad, things are good. Do you hear anything here? What does this mean to us? This is the missional, missionary, mission message of our age. Look at what's happened over 
the last 150 years. About 150 years ago, ignoring the Moravians in, in uh, Germany that actually had preceded it by another 100 years or so. But about 150 years ago, a guy named William Carey started what we call the modern missionary movement. He rediscovered the purpose of the gospel to be spread throughout the whole world. And he was from England. And him, he, he began and, and others like him came out of Europe to spread this gospel all around the world. And tribes, first of all, the most remote, were reached. There were missions that were started called the African Inland Mission and the Sudan Interior Mission. Missions like this, uh, the China Inland Mission. These were individuals that started organizations to reach these deep, dark places where people had not heard the gospel. After them, the move, movement were, moved to the, to the peripheries and, and, and more and more people were reached. When I started to enter into this, only a hundred years ago, <clears throat> uh, the whole thing was the Muslim world and the dark, cold, unbelievably unpenetrated place. Northern Africa used to be the home of Augustine. There were churches all across North Africa. It had all been effectively wiped out with the, the Islamic movement. And nobody was getting into these places. It was illegal to proselytize. People were jailed and killed for becoming Christians. You could count the number of Christians in Morocco on a hand. Today that's different. Oh, there's many still to be reached. But we're hearing stories of things that are happening in the Islamic world that are beyond comprehension. God's using things that make us a little uncomfortable, dreams and visions and remarkable things where the God, Word of God is not uh, available to reach and wake these people up. And amazing things are even happening in the Islamic world because for the last 30 years, people have been praying. In that 150 years, <clears throat> what has happened? Europe, what happened to it? Once again, frozen and lost in themselves. The world has not been reached because of the propensity of human hearts to cool to the message of God. What was once a hotbed of passion for a rediscovered gospel in Europe is now a wasteline of, a wasteland of human hearts lost in cold secularism. And we in America, are we any different? Having lived over there for as long as I did and coming back and visiting this place every once in a while, I used to say to people, if you want to see where America's going, just go to Europe. Now I've lived here almost a decade and I can tell you, that's exactly what's happening. We're losing ourselves in lost, cold secularism. In tremendous burgeoning wealth. Oh, I know you think you're poor because you're poorer than you were four years ago. But you continue to outstrip the world in all that we have. In all that we're blessed with. Micah's message is to us. We have it all. And we are finding ourselves with less and less and less 
of what really matters. So he has an answer for us. Here's the answer. For you wealthy that continue to trounce the poor. For you that continue to step over those just to gain more of what you want. Holiness and hope. Read with me. Chapter 3. Verses 8 to 12. He speaks of what he has been called to do. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, a temple hill, a mound overgrown with thickets. There's the message of holiness, a call against sin and what these people are doing against him. But at the same time, he continues to offer hope over and over again. But, verse chapter 5, verse 2, you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, yeah, just like me, the minor prophet, Yeah, you little guy, look what's going to happen. Out of you will come one who will be the ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. You recognize that. It's not even Christmas yet. Yet this is where that comes from. Social injustice, again, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil in their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They covered fields and feel, covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. And they defraud a man of his home and a fellow man of his inheritance. Here's the social injustice. But there is, in light, in the, at the same time, an opportunity for moral responsibility. Moral opportunity. Chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is his answer. Look at where you are, and look at what you can do about it. Holiness and hope. Why should we listen to Micah? Because his answer is our answer. And because of what he also says about God, about his God. He tells us that He's powerful, that He's true, that He's purposeful. He tells us that He's a God of sovereignty over everything. That no matter how much we think things are falling apart, and we have no control, He does, and He will, and His purposes will be accomplished. Not just that, He's perfectly consistent to His promises. This you need to hang on to. God is a God of promises, and everyone that He makes, He keeps. And He will fulfill. And we can trust that without the shadow of a doubt. God is perfectly consistent to His promises. He also is hope-filled regarding His remnant, regarding us, those who would be faithful to Him. He has great things to say about what He's going to do in and through them to accomplish His purposes. And then He speaks of Himself as a, as a king of power. There's the shame of men in this particular book, but then the triumph 
of God through his remnant. This particular uh, prophet leaves the the kind message of, of the servant Savior to his buddy Isaiah. He hasn't got time to, to write lots and lots and lots of pages on that. Isaiah, he'll do that. I'm a passionate poet that wants you to tell, to tell you the most important thing in the most concise way possible. His call is to respond to a God of power. And you know what? That's exactly what we need now. And when I say we, I'm talking about Bethlehem Church. This message here that I'm going to get to in just a second is the ripened fruit that we need to pick and eat as a church now, this year, right where we are. This is our second year of our three-year plan that it's greater to serve. To give you the big picture, we're about developing people. It's about people. That's what we are. We're a group of individuals who love a Lord and Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And in the most simple way we can say it, we believe that He wants us to, to gather and to serve and to learn. And so we turned that into a little plan of last year saying it's better to gather and to begin to rebuild our body. But then in the second year to Realize that it's greater to serve. This Jesus Christ says so and says you always should do so. And then we're going to get to what it is to, to learn coming out of this exercise of, our, of who we are as servants of Christ. So we found that it's better to gather and we found healing and regrouping and refocusing and some direction and some purpose. And this last summer we even discovered this loving God of the Holy Spirit who gives us His presence and His power and His promise and now we're ready to answer a call. Micah's call. This is our coming year. In the words of Micah, He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Okay, good. We're together now. We've gathered. What does God want us to do? Oh, oh in my words, three little things. That's it. He wants you to Act justly. And then to love mercy. And then, oh, then, then walk humbly with your God. That's our touchstone for the year. What does that look like? It looks like this concisely rendered verse, but it also looks like the demonstrated actions of our Lord and Savior. Jesus' example, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' followers. In the fall, we're going to spend our weeks talking about what it means to act justly following Jesus' example. Doing the right thing. Then at Advent time, we're going to do something a little different that ties right into what we're going to be doing. But then at the new year, we're going to be picking up something else. and That's going to be loving mercy through the winter time. And we're going to look at Jesus' teachings. And that's about having the right heart. It isn't just enough to do the right thing. It's necessary to have the right heart as you do what God's called us to do. And then in the spring, we're going to look at what it means to walk humbly, just like Jesus' followers. 
very human, very frail, very mistaken many times, but, but they did get it after a while, and they walked in the right way. Let me show you over these next three weeks what these phrases mean. And I, I want to give you the first one right now. What does it mean to act justly? Well, first of all, this word act means to do or fashion or accomplish. It's, it's used in a number of crystallized expressions. That's why we find it in Micah, because he liked these little terse things of getting his point across. And often it speaks of an ethical obligation. It's used many times in, G, in, uh, in God's creation act. Uh, it's combined there with, a, with a, a Hebrew word regarding newness. And out of nothing, what we call divine fiat. I lived in Italy. I've never known a divine fiat. Um, but the new 500 that's coming out is looking pretty good. Um, but no, that isn't what that means. Divine fiat is this uh, working out of nothing, an unparalleled creative work. It's a term of initiative. It was an act of the will. It was a choice. And we are like God to be acting out of a choice, out of a will. You don't need a reason to do this, yet the obligation's obvious. God has acted this way, so you should do the same thing. He was willing to first love you. Therefore, you should love others. Right? We know what love is because God first loved us. So, obviously, we should love others. That's the idea here. This acting is a response. It's a choice. You've got to make it. You should make it. You take the initiative to move and to do something. But you do it because it's so obvious that you should because of what God has already done for you. So do something. Don't just do something. Sit there. Right? That's what we like to say. No, no, no. Don't just sit there. Do something. That's what this is. Act justly. Do something. Okay, anything. No, act justly. Don't just do anything. Do justly. What's justly? This word shows up 400 times, more than 400 times in the Bible. And it represents the most important idea of a complete governing, a, a, a correct government. We have divided our government into three branches, the legislative and the administrative and the judicial. And easily we take this idea of justice and put it in the judicial branch. That's not the concept of this Hebrew word. <clears throat> it's often mistakenly put in that way. It's not a separation. It's the complete understanding of what it is to do the right thing, to govern justly. As a matter of fact, a great illustration of this is Solomon. Because when he's about to become king, God says, what do you want? Do you remember the story? And he said, Lord... Give me mishpat. Any apologies to anybody who knows Hebrew really well, and I mistakenly said that word. But that's the way it's written, mishpat. Give me, yeah, give me that. Give me doing justly. Give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Give me understanding in administrating what is the right thing to do because you are giving me this entire country and how do I know how to do what I'm supposed to do? 
And God looks at him and says, because you didn't ask for fame and for wealth and for fortune, I'm going to give you those anyway because you asked for the right thing. Then it's followed, by the way, with that amazing story of the two women fighting over whose baby was theirs. And he had the wisdom. Because as they fought over it, he said, bring me a sword. We'll cut the baby in half and give one to each. And then the true mother said, no, 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 no. What great wisdom. What great mishpat. What great doing the right thing. You see, this is what this is about. Acting justly. It's an act of initiation. It's my obligatory response to a God who's acted, first of all, for me. But not just to do anything. To do the right thing. To do the good thing. And that's what we need to be searching for. So at the beginning of what I just shared here this morning, I said that you don't know this prophet for a few different reasons. You're clean pages and because we call him a minor prophet so he's seemingly unimportant. But most importantly because of the troublesome imbalance that we have in our lives of not effectively acting justly, loving mercy, and truly walking humbly with our God. What a great opportunity we have to learn from Him and our Savior who fleshed it out what this means. So I leave with you this appeal. Listen to the prophet. This is the Word of God. This particular little book from which we launch and then we'll move into the New Testament, it may be one of the more obscure messages that you haven't read. But this passionate poet knew the Word of God and he gave it to us. And if he were here today, he would say, what are you supposed to do? Oh, act justly. Do something and make sure it's the right thing. Next week we'll talk about what it means to love mercy and then to walk humbly. Listen to this prophet. Look at the situation. This is where we stand today. I'm afraid our hands are blood-stained with our seeking after our own well-being at the cost of those that have yet to be saved. We're trampling the very ones we're supposed to be reaching. We can do better. And it's our job. It's the church's place to be reaching this world for himself. To be making a difference in people's lives. You're going to hear from somebody on October 9th that's going to come and share with us. He's another pastor of a church in... um, for our mission Sunday, but he's in uh, West Orange. And uh, when he got to this church, uh, it's, a, it's a thoroughfare. The parking lot is a thoroughfare between where kids get dropped off in a school. And they put up a fence and they stuck up a gate so that they could, they, so they'd keep these kids from walking through their property. Well, they'd been doing it so long that the kids took the, the gate off the fence and threw it in the creek. Said, how dare you? He showed up. He found out, this hell happened before he got there, he found out they were going to put up a bigger fence and a bigger gate. And he said, I'm not a visionary, God beat me over the head with this. But these kids were just walking through my property every day. What a great opportunity to just 
Meet them. Talk with them. Reach them. They have a burgeoning uh, ministry now through a nonprofit organization reaching these kids. Not only have they got them playing basketball in their gym, they've started a whole series of, uh, of, of, um, of leagues for these kids. They can't handle them all. At one point, they were turning them away because there were too many in the building because they didn't shut the gate. The church up to that point was guilty of driving away the very ones they were supposed to be reaching. What's our gate? What door are we unintentionally slamming? Well-meaning because we think it's better for the parking lot or something. Look at the situation. And then leap at the chance. This is the time to act justly. Ten years ago today, there were a group of people that number in the scores that did the right thing. And it cost them the ultimate price. And we define hero by that. And then we do well to say, you know what? That applies to people who do that all the time. That never get noticed and never pay the ultimate sacrifice. They're our heroes, aren't they? Can't we count ourselves in that group? Whose hero do you become? Because you consistently, purposefully, daily do the right thing. In the face of those that are around you. That need you, that need your help. That certainly need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can become heroes by doing the right thing, making a place for it in our lives and acting on what we know we are supposed to do. Let's enter into a journey of discovering what that is. Not just doing anything, doing the right thing. As you see on the posters that are around the church, I'm asking you to choose to be a part of those who will act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Certainly, Lord, we are overwhelmed so many times by all we have to do. Yet through your passionate poet, with an amazing way with words, you make it so simple and so clear. Teach us as we embark on this year what it is to serve as we have been served. To do the right thing and to do it with loving mercy and a walking humility that reflects all that we learn from your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name.